Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I thank you for giving us one hour to catch you up on what happened this week. And by we, I'm talking about Seattle Times environment reporter Isabella Breda. Hi, Isabella. Hey, happy to be here. Nice to see you here. Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter Mai Wong is not in Central or Eastern Washington. <laughs> Great to have you here. Thanks. I, uh, it's good to be here for the yeah. first time. Yeah. And Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan is in Seattle. Yeah. Great to, to be great to be in studio with you here, Bill. This is great. Great to see you too, Brian. And uh, you can see us too. We just might not always be looking at you, but we're streaming the show on YouTube and on Facebook. As usual, just search KUOW Public Radio. And if you missed any part of the show, you know you can hear the whole thing on the Week in Review podcast or on KUOW.org. Okay, let's start the show with what might be a, a quick thing, a quick item here. I just saw this last night. <laughs> My, the last time you were on this program, we laughed about how every time you're a guest, you must discuss deleted texts <laughs> on every show. I feel like it's been like three or four shows now. Yeah, yeah. We, in fact, uh, we laughed about it on the last show. You can go back and hear that show, except sadly it's no longer available. Somebody has deleted the uh, Oh. <laughs> right. Wait for it. Okay. Wait for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see what you did there. Thank you. Again, once again. So, uh, okay. So, serious news item. Like, the background is quite serious, right? The summer of 2020, heated protests, police tear-gassing Black Lives Matter protesters, police abandoned their precinct building on Capitol Hill. Demonstrators take over part of that neighborhood. People were shot. Two people died. There was damage to businesses. And some businesses and residents are suing the city over their actions. But lawsuits require evidence and thousands of text messages sent around that time and afterward by the mayor, the police chief, the fire chief. They've disappeared. So the the update is that NBC News is now reporting that 191 texts were manually deleted from Mayor Jenny Durkin's phone. Brian, what is the significance of manually deleted? I think this turns from, at least from the plaintiff's point of view, a sin of omission to a sin of commission. Mm -hmm. So I think the story we've been hearing from Jenny Durkin all along has been, you know, I was out at uh, uh, my place out on Puget Sound and dropped my phone in the water. And then in the process of restoring it, the uh, settings were switched such that it was deleting text in a way that it should not have, right? So what we're hearing now from the plaintiffs is that Guess what? 191 texts were actually manually deleted. That's different than settings, uh, having the settings changed or whatever else. That's actually going in and deleting these things. So I, I, I'm really interested in this because it came out with the lawsuit that the Seattle Times filed against Jenny Durkin with the Public Records Act. And that was settled earlier this year. And in that settlement, Jenny Durkin admitted, well, you know, this happened with my phone in the water and all that. But it was in my possession the entire time. No one else could have touched it. So that that's a very interesting piece of this. I don't know how this is all going to come together from a court perspective, but you have a lot, a lot, a lot of merchants up there who are suing the city for millions of dollars. You've got these concerns about public records, too. So this does not look good, I don't think, for Jenny Durkin, but we'll have to see how it plays out in court. Does anyone know whether this is just about the odds of someone getting a settlement from the city of Seattle versus Jenny Durkin personally being in jeopardy here? 
Well, didn't I see on top of that that there were city staffers that also had restored their phones? Yes. So it goes far beyond just the former mayor. Yes, thank you. This um, uh, report, I, I keep wanting to say it like it's not an autopsy. What it, when you go, you, you, I, I, I don't know what the forensic right word. Report. Forensic report. There you go. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Yep. Thank you. This forensic report um, says that factory resets were performed on the phones of six other city officials in the fall of 2020 resulting in thousands of messages being deleted. And the city said, oh, that's because the officials had forgotten passwords or otherwise locked themselves out of their devices. Mm, sounds suspicious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when's the last time you did a factory reset on your phone? That's, um, no, I, I mean, I just put in a big bowl of rice. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed <laughs> to do? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like, yeah, the story just keeps changing. I yeah. feel like I've heard, because I've been on the show and we keep talking about it, <laughs> you know, I feel like I hear like... Like a different version, like every show. Yes. So, so probably the next time on the show, it'll be like a different version. Well, we'll we'll have to time that just <laughs> right. To hear about it. <laughs> okay. So that is that. Does that about cover it for now? If I, you're following, I think so. I think case. it's just an issue of following this court case, see what happens with these different merchants and their lawsuit, but also looking at what this means in the long term. Because again, with looking back at the Times lawsuit. Seattle is trying to change its habits when it comes to this and how public officials save their messages. So Are I they? Know, yeah, they, from what I understand, they have. But okay. it hasn't really been tested, and it only really does get tested when lawsuits get filed. So that's yes. what we're up against here. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so the, that, the, that's the former mayor, among other people, as we've said, several other people. Let's talk about the new mayor of Seattle, who's so new that he hadn't written a budget before this week. And as Marcus Harrison Green wrote in the, in the Times... A Seattle budget is a reflection of Seattle's beliefs. So let's hear a bit of the speech from Mayor Bruce Harrell. We also know that evaluating and expanding how we respond to emergencies and a crime will improve our safety outcomes. Our Parks District proposal reestablishes the Park Ranger Program, which would reduce the need for police to visit parks. And this budget puts nearly $2 million toward programs to explore and diversify 911 responses. We know that just sending police officers to a scene is not always the right approach. We recognize this. This is how we will begin to build more options. We are working hard to stand up a third public safety uh, department strategically deployed hand-in-hand with fire, hand-in-hand with police to help community members in their moments of need. Now, this investment will provide critical insight to further inform that effort as we aim to be bold and diversify our approach to public safety. So as we continue to work together to develop a more effective public safety safety system, I'm proposing returning the parking enforcement officers from SDOT, from the Seattle Department of Transportation, back to SPD. Now, having heard from our employees, the PEOs and their labor representatives, we understand that our PEOs feel better equipped to do their work from SPD at this time. So uh, we all should recognize that the PEO's office, their space, their their human resources, their IT resources, their equipment are all currently still located within SPD. So while we continue our work to reimagine public safety, this may not be our PEO's final home. However, this move will avert nearly $5 million in general fund costs and can be applied towards important community investments. Brian, is Seattle's mayor refunding the police? Uh, Not exactly. I think at least with these parking enforcement officers, if I can start there, Mm -hmm. this was something that just didn't go well. Uh, This was something that happened at the end of last year 
the city council, again, trying to reimagine police and where we put assets. So they wanted to move these parking enforcement officers who weren't chasing after crime, etc., outside of the Seattle PD. And originally, they wanted to have them in the new communications center, the new agency that the city has set up. That's what the public safety chair, Lisa Herbold, was pushing for. Some of her compatriots on the council said, no, 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 let's put them into SDOT. It didn't work out well. the Transportation Department. You got it, Seattle Department of Transportation. And so with that move, it didn't work out well. You might remember from earlier this year, reported by David Croman in the Seattle Times, that a number of the problem was the authority to write tickets was not transferred over with this transfer department. So hundreds of thousands of tickets had to be refunded to different people who got them because of this shift. So I will say, though, this is a situation where I think Mayor Harrell went to pains to say, this is what we're doing right now. That's not to say that PEOs, these public, or excuse me, parking enforcement officers, couldn't move into a different agency. But for the right here and right now, they wanted to make sure they had something that was stable. I think in the future, there's definitely going to be some pressure from the city council to move these parking enforcement officers out. But right now, putting them back into SPD seemed like the smartest move. And so that's what the mayor did. Okay. I know this sounds like a small point, but I just, on that, I didn't understand. He says that this might not be permanent. Mm -hmm. Parking enforcement might move back again, but this is going to save $5 million. So I don't see how moving them again later saves $5 million or anything. You're nodding your head, Isabella. It's not just me. (laughs) Well, I just feel like there was a lot of background provided on why this was happening. And maybe it was just a political move to say this makes more sense right now. But there wasn't a lot of explanation as to why it would be saving any money. Five million dollars in efficiency of having them in the same office. I'm not quite sure either, Isabella, but I, I, I think this is certainly on behalf of the mayor trying to be very frank about not defunding the police. He doesn't want to do that. So he's trying to restore these different parts here. But I think he's also looking at what the city council was looking at last year, which was this report from the National Institute for Criminal Justice Reform. You'll hear it being named Nick Jr. by the uh, city council there. They had this report that showed 80% of the calls that police are going to are actually non-criminal calls. So there is a push. There's definitely a push to try to move some of these different functions that are not criminal-related, that are not investigation-related, out of the Seattle Police Department. The council thought they had something going with this situation with the PEOs. It didn't work out, but I think that is going to be part of the discussion over the next couple of couple of years here. And as the mayor brought up there, he is looking into building this third agency here, this third emergency agency, and I think that's going to be something that we see over the next couple of months and certainly at the start of next year. Okay, uh, he mentioned park rangers. Yeah. Some progressive Seattle groups say they oppose more park rangers. This is Angelica Chassero with the group Decriminalize Seattle calling park rangers soft cops. When we say defund SPD and fund community needs, we do not mean fund responders who may not be armed, but who will also act to funnel people into jail or into other coercive settings. Will these park rangers funnel people into jail or other coercive settings? Not from the city council's perspective. So this was all part of the parks district budget that's been worked on over the past couple of weeks here. It's it's going to be doubled. It's going Uh, up. Yeah, it is. It is going to be doubled there. And so that's something that Seattle voters and taxpayers need to be aware of there. But essentially, in passing this, the council put a resolution within this, uh, this package that said, all right, you know what? We figured this out back in 2012. These park rangers are not about making arrests. They make verbal recommendations, if you will, to people. It's like, hey, you know, sleeping here is probably not a good idea. Or, you know, you really, really need to... Really? They can't say, hey, you cannot sleep here. I, it, I, it's not... It's it's less of a... I guess if it's it's less of a push and more of a pull uh, uh-huh. is, is the way I'd look at it. And so I think they're just... Uh, 
they're 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 out there to provide a presence. It is not a police officer. It's not an armed officer. But specifically, what the council said in its resolution in passing this through was, okay, these officers, these park rangers, excuse me, these park rangers cannot be part of anything resembling a sweep of people who are homeless. So they're they're trying to be very specific about that. Uh, I'm hopeful that that's the way it'll actually turn out. But I think uh, when you hear these different protesters here and what they're saying, I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on these park rangers as they uh, get uh, 27 of them now are going to be deployed around uh, mainly downtown areas. Yeah. Okay. Any more information or questions about Seattle budget? Feel like we covered it enough for now? Okay. A lot going on. Okay. Well, I want to move then to King County, which wants a new property tax levy to raise $1.25 billion over nine years for mental health care and substance use treatment. Right now, King County doesn't have any walk-in centers for people in a behavioral health crisis. This week, the county executive said he wants to open five community crisis centers across the county. No word yet on where those would be. Some indicators, but we don't know yet where these five crisis centers would be. This is County Council Member uh, Gurmai Zahalai, who is among the supporters of this bill. For a region of 2.3 million people, we have one crisis care facility with 46 beds, and you need a first responder referral to get into it. And if you want a walk-in place, a voluntary place that you can go to get care, you have zero options. This levy money would also reopen 100 treatment beds in the county that have closed in the last five years. The levy would cost about 10 bucks a month for the owner of a median-valued home, and it could be on the ballot as soon as April. Is there any opposition to this? Um, I guess we'll see what the voters say in April, but where, you know, where are there, are there serious arguments pro and con? What should listeners know about this question of whether to pay for more property taxes to, uh, to build mental health, mental health crisis centers? Something that stood out to me was the crisis counselor that spoke at the press conference and basically said, you know, we feel undervalued and how are you going to employ people and open these centers if we don't have more pay? And that was specifically something that was outlined there, that the money could be used to help recruit people to work in that field. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's something that's felt across the healthcare sector, but especially in behavioral health lately. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was kind of mentioning to you, I'd like, basically there's it's hard to get help i mean even for a person that's well off has insurance um i hear my you know colleagues and other professionals have a hard time getting like a therapist appointment so think about people who need these crisis centers they're probably not they don't have those same resources so i mean there's definitely a need and if you're showing up to a crisis center and getting turned away mm-hmm. you know what happens next who's there to care for that person right it's just kind of this this uh Inverse, uh, it, it's it's ridiculous to see the amount of uh, different problems with mental health, behavioral health that have grown mm-hmm. exponentially during the during the pandemic here, mm-hmm. and yet by the same token, as we've seen prices go up, etc., it's more and more difficult to get mental health professionals to do the job. They've been leaving in droves, and so I think that's the those are the two pieces that the county is trying to work on here. In terms of the the no side of this, if you will, I think there are a lot of people. I I mentioned that Seattle Parks District piece is doubling the King County Conservation Futures Fund. That looks like it's going to be doubling too. That's on the ballot this. November. So I think there is some concern about rising taxes that's out there. You'll definitely hear that pushback from a lot of different people. But I will say Seattle and King County have a pretty solid history of supporting a lot of levies. So I I would think that that would happen again here. But again, we're going to have to see what happens with this in April, a lot of time in between then and now. 
Yeah, the uh, city council member, Alex Peterson, told the Seattle Times that constituents are complaining about tax bills. The Times editorial board said the city needs to get its financial house in order before they ask for more money. But as you say, voters usually just keep saying, yes, we want to be taxed. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's I think it's it's just it's the way our state works. And you've probably heard it before from lawmakers uh, of, of any stripe. They will tell you that we have the most regressive tax system in the country. And so how do you deal with that? Well, the way we, we ha- remind people what regressive tax structure is, it means that people who earn a lot of money have a certain amount of tax taken from them. But the people who earn a lot less money, the percentage of their money that is taken away is a lot more, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So, yes, that, that's what we're talking about with regressive here. And because we base most of our taxes on property taxes, this is we don't have an income tax in our state, right? And so that turns into a situation where property tax is just about one of the very few ways that lawmakers can actually reach out and get revenue. And so what they're doing with a lot of these different measures is they're bumping up that amount that they're able to collect, but they need to keep under that 1% threshold there. So it turns into a a challenge, if you want to look at it that way, from a lawmaker's perspective about how much they can gain, but it can turn into a challenge for taxpayers too. I don't think you can overlook that. And I think Councilmember Peterson has been talking about that a lot on the Seattle City Council because there's other stuff coming up, like the Move Seattle levy in a little while. We're talking about the housing levy next year. So uh, there's a lot of things at work here. I don't have a perfect answer to it, but I know that's what lawmakers are dealing with. You think voters would say yes to lifting the lid on property taxes or changing the state constitution to allow an income tax if they can't get one through the courts or get a capital gains tax through the courts? I, it, it's, it's in the works. I know that uh, lawmakers have been looking at a, a billionaire's tax over the past mm-hmm. couple of years, a wealth tax, things of that nature. Income tax has been a, has been a non-starter for the most part, but, but who knows? I, I don't know. Yeah, what. I mean, I think it depends where you are. I mean, True. where you know, I think on the opposite side, I'm in eastern Washington, and a lot of communities, uh, not just in eastern Washington, actually a lot of communities on, in uh, like southwest Washington have been passing these laws like, no, you know, we're not going to put in a city income tax. So, I mean, yeah. there's definitely a push in the opposite direction as well. So, it depends where you are. I think people are kind of flirting with it. I mean, they're, yeah, they're looking at different, you know, if you can't pass a quote-unquote income tax, you know, yeah, pass all these other types of taxes and then see how see how people react. Right, like the Jumpstart payroll tax here in <laughs> Seattle sure. is an example, too. So there's there's different a- avenues that lawmakers can take, but they're they're pretty limited. Yeah, I would say the concern, because actually we talked about the Jumpstart tax, I think the last time I was on the show, so... <laughs> Watch I, out. Yeah. There are rules, mine. That's there right. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, and I think the concern with that tax was, you know, um, you know, the, the point of that ho- was affordable housing, yes. but they were actually u- using some of it for, like, general fund stuff, so... Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of COVID relief, just to kind of keep the budget rolling mm-hmm. there, but you're right, uh, affordable housing is where it's supposed to be going. So, I mean, th- you know, and I think during that show, I talked about, you know, that builds distrust among, mm. you know, taxpayers if, you know, you need to be transparent. I read in a lot of, you know, I read a, an op-ed and it was talking about like nationally, not just Seattle, but they're talking about how, you know, you need to rebuild, you know, Democrats need to rebuild the trust and be transparent about like what these taxes are used for. 
because like Republicans are going to exploit that and say, well, look at the look how they like used your money and they didn't use it properly. And rural communities, especially in like Snohomish County, where I had covered for a long time, will push back on that and use that as an example. You know, if this is what you did with my property taxes the last time and it's not going the way I want it to, I'm not going to pass this next school district levy. I'm not going to pass this 0.01% tax for affordable housing. I want to see what's happening with it. So you can't just keep relying on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Isabella, I, I know Snohomish County's got to be changing between my in-migration from other places, including the city of Seattle. Where, where is Snohomish County uh, these days on its, on I know, sort of these conservative, progressive uh, uh, stands, taxes, other things? Has it changed a lot since you came there? I would say it's still a mixed bag. I mean, Everett still remains pretty progressive and willing to pass taxes, uh, regardless on whether or not they had a a belief on whether previous taxes function the way they had intended to. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when you look at smaller communities and you especially go out east, even Index, which uh, the Seattle Times reported that there's this bit big influx of like climbers moving out there since they've had the opportunity to work remotely. Um, even those communities remain uh, pretty, pretty anti-tax. So mm-hmm. even after a big fire. Sure. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, OK, well, uh, we're not in a way there's a theme to this show because, you know, the, the limits, what limits there should be on COVID relief mm. and clean energy programs. That's all going to come up uh, here on Week in Review after we take uh, a little break, a short break, and we're going to come right back to the show with Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan and Crosscut's Mai Huang, the Seattle Times' Isabella Breda. We're all on YouTube and Facebook with you. Search KUOW Public Radio, and we'll be right back. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. School superintendents across Washington state say they need more time to spend federal COVID relief money before it gets cut off. One of my guests here, Mai Huang, is with Crosscut. And Mai, this story comes from your colleagues. What is the federal COVID tax relief money supposed to be spent on for schools? Yeah, um, you can probably guess what, you know, uh, the, the main drives the lost academic pro- progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that not being in school for several years, um, a lot of kids are falling behind, so they're trying to get kids to catch up. Like remedial uh, work or mm-hmm. more teachers? Yeah. And then the other thing I think um, that people might not know about is air filtration, like trying to improve, you know, one of the things that kind of came out of the of COVID and the conversation is just that, you know, the filtration system, the air, the air in these schools aren't very good. So... Mm-hmm. You know, that's an opportunity to use that. And then mental health. I mean, we've talked, yeah. we just talked about in the previous segment. I mean, c- uh, kids um, really have been impacted mentally um, in terms of mental health issues. Um, I actually know people personally um, who had kids that really went through it during COVID. So. Yeah, we saw those healthy youth surveys during the pandemic years, 2020 and 2021, that came back with students reporting, you know, uh, increasing symptoms of anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. And so that was something that I think educators really wanted to focus on and how to spend those relief dollars. Yeah, my, my kids, I, I, I love them pieces and, and they, they just went through a lot during COVID and uh, in high school, both of them. And uh, I just think it's, it's been a difficult thing for kids to deal with. And resiliency, we always talk about that. And kids are very much mm-hmm. resilient, but there's a limit to that. And I think sure. that's a big piece of this when it comes to mental and behavioral health. 
Yeah, ditto. We were watching, you know, that movie Encanto? Yeah. But we don't talk about Bruno, and, and there's yeah. another <laughs> song in there we like about the pressure that the sort of... The, the, the big the, sister. The yeah. big sister, the Hercules <laughs> sister faces. It's all about pr- feeling pressure. Mm-hmm. And my oldest uh, just burst into tears mm. watching it. I said, well, honey, you know, what's going on? And she just said, you know, that I, I so relate to that feeling of pressure. And you can't put all that on a pandemic, but yeah, but yeah anyway... Um, <laughs> get emotional there. So, so, so. Meanwhile, here we are. Uh, Congress uh, approved this in in three different rounds: federal COVID tax relief money. Congress said that it was to help schools navigate immediate coronavirus related challenges, and they did give it a cutoff. Um, Twenty twenty five. The pre- my the president said the pandemic's over. What's the argument for mm-hmm. keeping the money? flowing past 2025. I mean, I think they're still unpacking. I mean, if you read the, <laughs> if you read the story my colleagues wrote, I mean, it's clearly school districts are still kind of trying to figure out what the impact. I mean, they there's kind of the immediate idea. Like we know the basic idea which is you know, there's learning loss. We know there was mental health issues. But we don't know. I think what they're trying to figure out is what is the extent of those issues? And then how do we fix those issues? And then obviously these are issues that aren't going to go away just because the pandemic's over. So mm-hmm. how do we sustain, you know, that care beyond, you know, the quote unquote pandemic? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the year 2025, it just kind of turns into a little bit of a cliff. So it's like we're providing the services and not so much anymore. So I, I think a few schools are looking at that and trying to find ways to extend this money out. Because I think, like you say, my these these services are still going to be very much needed. And not every school has the resources to, mm-hmm. to put towards them uh, on a consistent basis. And this federal money has helped a lot. But I think, as you say, they are still unpacking yeah. what's going on with these students and teachers. And if you look at other COVID relief programs that kind of just ended, um, like I think the one I think about is like the eviction moratoriums. Yeah. They, those just kind of ended. And then all of a sudden, all these like housing advocates are like running around being like, OK, like and, and they didn't offer rent assistance. So now we're like. That's why you had all these rent assistance programs come at the last minute because everyone was so I think the school districts are trying to prevent this cliff where they're having to kind of run around and like figure out on the fly, like what to do next. Well, can if if Congress members vote on a package with a deadline, can the White House, can the administration then just remove the deadline or. I mean, maybe if the pandemic worsens again, as we keep being warned about, maybe Congress reconsiders the deadline or maybe these school systems can drum up more money from the legislature. I mean, those are I mean, all those options are on the table. I mean, I think it depends on I mean, it depends on political will. And, you know, I kind of shared a link with you guys before the show about, you know, that Republicans are saying, oh, well, they're actually using this money to put in like leftists, you know, racially charged programming so this is why they they're not using it for covid like that's the argument Mm. and you know and and kind of the school districts are also you know uh, at the end of the story that my colleagues wrote you know you have a a quote from a superintendent saying oh actually we're still having problems you know even with mccleary you know mccleary um mccleary was the court decision decision, that said washington state needs to fund schools as as job one yeah and they still haven't really figured that out yet so like so they're trying to f- 
figure out that. And so they're saying this is an opportunity for us to figure that out, too. And so I can see some people being like, well, that's not COVID. You know, that's not mm-hmm. relevant. I mean, it is kind of relevant. They're intertwined, but I can see the argument of people saying it's not. So, And I think what you're getting at, too, is like it's not just necessarily COVID resiliency and recovery. It's also schools addressing things like we've never had a suite of mental health supports. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's Before something that COVID, we, need. we didn't have. It, yeah. Right? yeah. And maybe right. that's something that we need. And it takes time to develop a program. And that may not necessarily happen before the spending window closes. So they're grappling with all these different issues and ideas. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they're throwing, like, as a state, I mean, I think uh, in a couple of shows, we've talked about the um, the new mental health, the new law that allows kids to stay home from mm-hmm. mental health. That's mm-hmm. new. I mean, they're throwing a lot of things out there yeah. and are experimenting with a lot. And so... You know, this COVID money is useful for those types of things. And but again, like they're still trying to figure out how to make it work. And so I I think they're trying to state. I mean, I there is a website that OSPI has that shows like here's all the objectives. You know, here's how we want to spend the money. And they actually have given some examples mm-hmm. of different school districts and what they have done with the money. So just because they haven't like rushed and spent the money right. doesn't mean they're not using it. It's just that they are being they're trying to be thoughtful about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like these individual individual districts can actually file some paperwork to extend it by a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So I imagine a few of them will do that, but that is a process they would have to go through. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm I'm interested to see how that plays out. And just in terms of how our state funds schools, I, I think you're absolutely right, Maya and Isabella. This is something that really lays bare that challenge that, you know, there we had that McCleary decision in 2012. Then the legislature came up with a few fixes in 2018, and I think we're still there in that situation mm-hmm. where schools that are in rich districts, they have more resources. They have more things going on they for students. Levies. and levies. Yeah, they, they, they pass levies, right, yeah. and these other communities do not. Snohomish yeah. County is one of them, mm-hmm. sure. Okay, well, whether or not you think we're still in a pandemic emergency, uh, here's, here's a, a crisis that everybody agrees is building, Isabella. You are now on the environment beat for the Seattle Times, and Seattle has now begun its own version of the Green New Deal. What does that mean in Seattle? Yeah, so it's been in the works since 2019 when they were one of, you know, dozens of cities across the country that passed a resolution committing to these very ambitious climate goals. Some of them, uh, you know, just making transit free and accessible, expanding routes. Um, You know, some days it's hard to see that being a functioning thing when light rail, the power is out, five stops along the way. Um, So there's just little things and it's going to take multiple agencies teaming up to be able to reach those goals. Um, You know, one thing that's sticks out is where Seattle is on its uh, carbon neutral goals. So for one, it would be, you know, being carbon neutral from city buildings, and I believe vehicles as well by 2035. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that's going to take is, you know, replacing entire fleets of vehicles, transitioning all the buildings, some of them built eons ago, um, to clean, quote unquote, clean power. So electric heat pumps and those types of things, and those all come at a cost. So once again, you're going to be looking at what the taxpayers are willing to front. Uh, Granted, the first piece of this that rolled out last week um, was $6.5 million uh, for just a handful of programs chipping away at these Green New Deal goals. Um, And it's going to take a lot more than that to get to where they want to be by 2035. There's a lot going on with this. And I I just thought it was very interesting to unpack it uh, last week with what the mayor was talking about. He spoke down in the Duwamish Valley about Mm -hmm. this. And I thought that was very telling because you talk about the cost of it financially. There are costs to it in terms of human life in that area of Seattle. There, Duwamish Valley, the lifespan 
is eight years less uh, than the rest of the neighborhoods around Seattle. So I think they're looking back at the events like the heat dome mm-hmm. we had a short while ago. number of people died here in uh, the city of Seattle. It was the most deaths we've ever had from a weather-related event in Washington state. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely some concerns about costs. And, you know, the market not jumping on here very quickly, that's a piece of it for sure. But there are human costs, too. I just wanted to make sure I brought that up as well. Sure. And that was something that was discussed at that press conference there in the Duwamish Valley was um, overhead, there's planes flying every 30 or less seconds. And that's something that um, people from the Green New Deal Oversight Board, like Maria Bataiola, spoke about. Kids who can't focus in schools in the area. It goes far beyond just like what you think about as climate change that's happening with drying rivers. It's affecting humans, too. And those are things that are sort of prioritized in this initial rollout of 6.5 million uh, with the, quote, climate resilience hubs, which is basically basically intended to be a space where people could go escape their maybe smoky apartment and access air conditioning, um, just a safe space to go. Uh, It's unclear how quickly they'll be able to establish some of those places. Why is it that a city run by progressives would not be on track to meet its own climate goals? I mean, you you said it's expensive, basically, but we knew that when it was, you know, uh, we knew it was going to be expensive. So is it just as simple as that? I mean, I, I think in talking about the text messages today, too, a mm. lot has happened since 2019. <laughs> this wasn't the priority. And I think, uh, you know, Mayor Harrell in his campaign was really critical of uh, former Mayor Durkin not making this a priority. And that's something that now he's trying to bring to the forefront. Of course, the Green New Deal oversight board members are pretty critical of that, saying it's still not enough and it's uh, too slow, too little, too late. Um, But now it's just starting to become a semblance of a priority. Yeah, I mean, Isabella is mentioning like, replacing cars and i think if you're gonna break it down there's not a lot of cars to buy right now sure i mean we're you know we're still dealing with this issue of you know parts that are hard to find we're dealing with supply chain Mm -hmm. um you know i got a regular car you could wait months i have i have had had friends who ordered a car last year and are just now getting their car now sure so Think about, and that's like a regular gas guzzler car. (laughs) Think about a, you know, an energy efficient or hybrid or an electric car. Like there's probably fewer of those cars. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if your goal, I mean, 2035 sounds like really far away, but it's, it really isn't. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking about some of the goals that the state made, like were related to the environment back in like when I first moved to Washington state in like 2006, talking about, you know, reducing emissions Mm -hmm. and like, the the aim was 2025 and we're now in 2022 and i'm like mm-hmm. oh where did that time go so it, it's not a lot of time to do all these things and it's the same thing with like buildings um materials are really expensive mm-hmm. right now they're not easily available and so that's going to raise costs so there's going to be people who aren't exactly incentivized to, to do it yeah and i think seattle in its way, is always trying to be a leader in these things as a city, and this was an attempt to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remember at the state level over the past couple of years, voters have rejected carbon tax measures uh, by and large uh, across the state. So uh, they'll they'll pass them here on the west side. I mean, you'll see it in counties here, but it isn't something that the rest of the state is on board with. So I think political will is a piece of it. I think once you build up some of this cus- uh, consumer demand, I think that's a piece to piece to it too. But I think you're right, Mai. It's going to take a little while, and mm-hmm. it might take longer than 2035, but 
this was the city's attempt to make a step in that direction. I mean, talking about political will in the city, Mm -hmm. I mean, just my experience with other policies where Seattle's kind of the leader, I think minimum wage comes to mind, like Seattle, SeaTac, they they did the $15 an hour thing really early. And then the whole state kind of came around, but only after like a very thorough like negotiation process, you know, in Olympia during session. And then and then there was a, the voter initiative, right, that led to, you know, the the, rate, the, the significant raise of minimum wage. Yes. And, and so I think it's the same thing. I think it's, you know, I think Seattle's going to do it. Although I feel like minimum wage, there was a little more, will, like, interest because it is people's paychecks. I don't know if there's that same interest among, like, regular people with, like, this, with cars or, like, this Green New Deal. Like, I, I think in theory you could probably get there, but it, it's I don't feel like it's there yet. It's just less tangible, right? right? I mean, you can't, you can see some pollution, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. You can't see, oh, wait, I'm breathing in this many chlorofluorocarbons at this moment. You don't see that. And mm-hmm, so pe- yeah. when people can't put their hands on it, 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 it does make it difficult from a political perspective. Yeah, yeah, between that, between it not being a tangible thing and the up- upfront cost just being yeah. immense in a lot of cases, and especially for households that, you know, may have never considered it, and now there's this push. I mean, after writing about these incentives for switching to heat pumps, I had quite a few people reaching out saying, even with a loan, that's not something mm-hmm. within reach for me. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality for people across the region. Mm-hmm. And then you have the fact that we're part of a globe, a you know, a climate that is not restricted to Western Washington. So yeah. talk about tangible. I mean, there's there's the desire to be a leader on a global issue, mm-hmm. but the actual return you're going to get, you're not going to get a mental uh, health crisis facility out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's the whole thing. It's like, what what tangible thing can you provide me if I if I support this? And I think a lot of the incentives, you're right, uh, they're substantial, but are they substantial enough? And that's that's where the market comes into this mm-hmm. whole And whole I just situation. find with housing incentives in general, like, mm-hmm. um, and not just environmental ones, just housing incentives that cities pass in hopes of generating some sort of activity. So it could be, you know, additional residents in like downtown or something that it's, you know, they sell it. But like, I feel like most developers don't buy it because of the cost or it's just not. And it also with incentives, there's also a lot of requirements that come with incentives. You also have to show that you've met certain those requirements mm-hmm. and that's paperwork and that's extra time. And that's, you know, that's not. And it's just easier for them just to do what they usually do yeah. instead mm-hmm. of going out of their way to do a project that maybe has like a little bit of payoff. I hear you, but I, I all developers are doing just fine in Seattle. <laughs> right, right, right. No, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're, but I mean, yeah, that's the point though. If they're doing yeah. just fine, like why would they? I see. Go I see. out of their way to. Yeah. So yeah. Isabella, this is something that you cover. I'm curious what you think when when politicians. Uh, tr- Trumpet? What's a what's a nicer word? When they talk <laughs> up the incentives that they're that tout, they're giving, perhaps. tout is yeah. a better mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Uh, do they know full well that the mar- what, the way the market behaves and w- d- incentives that developers will bite on or won't, and supply chain, all that stuff? Do they know full well that the the uptake is not going to be as wonderful as the words make it sound, or is there kind of a uh, is there a little um, wink and a nod here of how? <laughs> How progressive I am, mm. and yet you, 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 and your colleagues have written about how the uptake on some of this stuff is not—it's not what you might think. Sure, yeah. When I asked uh, County Executive Constantine, you know, what's going to come next? Because clearly, um, you know, the program that he's pitching to give people loans—and these would be private loans—to be able to buy heat pumps and switch out from their old fossil fueled uh, furnaces 
it was going to leave a lot of people out. And he said, this is a yes and situation. You know, this is just to gauge people's interest, get the ball rolling on these programs. Um, But frankly, without like real commitment and investment over the years, this is going to be insignificant. And I think that's something that a lot of the time these public officials are very aware of. They, they do get stakeholders together. I yeah, will say that. And, and that is part of it. And that would include developers, et cetera. But there, there's a lot more to it than yeah. that, as, as you brought up. Well, listen, since you brought – let's take a short break. And since you brought up all the planes flying over <laughs> Duwamish Valley, which, <laughs> yes, is, is, is uh, very It's segue true. day. I love it. It yeah. is. Segway, it's, it's, it's an electric segue. Uh, let's talk about what flew over Washington State uh, this week when we come back on Week in Review. <laughs> KUOW's Week in Review this week is Crosscuts Mai Huang, the Seattle Times' Isabella Breda, and Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, and I'm Bill Radke. Electric vehicle history was made this week in Washington State. An electric airplane named Alice, assembled in Snohomish County, made its maiden flight. Do we still call them maiden flights? It's first. If it's Alice, yeah, I guess yeah, so. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Okay, Alice. Uh, out, of, out of Moses Lake. This is not the first electric aircraft, but this is a commuter plane. It's designed for commercial use to carry passengers from place to place. And KOW's Tom Bonsi told us about the first flight of Aviation's Alice. The eye-catching, vaguely spaceship-like electric airliner took off for the first time amid a cinematic central Washington sunrise. It had a belly full of batteries driving two propellers, one on each side of its tail. Test pilot Stephen Crane was the only person on board the nine-passenger plane for the maiden flight. He flew two loops around the airfield before landing after eight minutes aloft. Crane says Alice, the electric aircraft, felt different than other planes he's flown, but says it handled beautifully. It's a fast airplane, uh, real sleek, very responsive and did well. The CEO of Aviation said this is the first radical change in aerospace propulsion technology since we went from the piston engine to the jet engine, now to the electric motor. Environment reporter Isabella Breda, how big an environmental deal is this plane? I mean, I think it's a pretty big deal. Granted, you just have to keep in mind that this is a prototype and this flight was a test of the prototype itself, not a passenger plane that could go to market yet. Yeah. Right. And I thought another interesting part, I mean, this is for short trips. They're mm-hmm. talking 200 miles or something like that yeah. for this plane. Is that right? Yeah. And I was seeing that it would be kind of risky to try to get it from Seattle to Yakima. And if you're thinking of com- uh, commuter flights, I mean, that seems like a pretty quick trip. You would yes. think. And it, I, I also wanted to ask you this, Isabella. I know there's a lot of push for uh, biofuels. I, the airlines have been working on that for a long time. So is that is that a competition with the electric plane or how does that sort out? Not that I'm aware of, but I mean, the goal of working on these electric planes would be to reduce the reliance on jet fuels, which are becoming increasingly expensive, and that's going to harm the smaller municipal airports mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So I actually am somewhat familiar with this sto- uh, 
concept because uh, I wrote a story a couple of years ago. Um, WASDOT's been looking into this for a couple of years now. They're, they're, Again, that's the state transportation. Yes, the department. Washington State Department mm-hmm. of Transportation, yes. And um, they actually did a feasibility study. They looked at some test markets. Actually, the Yakima Airport was a test, mar- you know, test market they were considering to test out these planes eventually. Moses Lake was also one, so that's mm-hmm. so not surprising that they did the flight in Moses Lake. Um <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, we're really far away from you know reality, you know, con- you know, con- actually commercially viable. It's, I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. as Isabel said, it's it's they're testing out the concept. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of potential, and mm-hmm. um, you know, being from being based in Yakima, we've lost air service um, yeah. because of jet fuel. Like we've had airlines pull out because the jet fuel for the cost of fuel to do that uh, flight was way too expensive. So. Sure. Yeah. So besides biofuels, the big sticking point is that it, we need batteries that are lighter and more efficient to compete with jet fuel, right? Right. I, and uh, until biofuels come along and can compete. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because it's again part of this this green movement too. These are no emission planes, and so that that figures into this as well. So I'm I'm interested to see how that this plays out. I know it's going to take a while, but I, I was really digging on the fact that it was. Alice based on Alice in Wonderland, or, or Go Ask Alice by Jefferson Airplane. Which, but that, that, oh, wait a minute. Check it out. Yeah, I that's what the, put that together. That's what, that's what the CEO was saying. I was like, okay, re- remember what the Dormouse said. Let's let's figure this out, man. I it's, think it's, so, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Okay, um, so maybe, uh, maybe 2027 there could be a customer delivery. I don't know. We'll see about that. Okay. Um, how, many short, how many segues is too much? Because we just talked about a short hop. Do you think oh, there's wow. one more in Do it. Do it. <laughs> Take us home. Take us home. You see uh, Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Huang. Uh, I went apple picking last weekend with my oh. family in Wenatchee, but we didn't pick hops. And it's hop harvesting season. And there's nothing like reaching out and picking a fresh hop and eating it right there, warmed <laughs> by the sun, <laughs> the hop juice running down your neck. Oh, gosh. My, my, uh, to people around the world, hops come from, from your town, your area. Yakima yes, Valley. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, it's hop season, and uh, we actually grow, uh, it's a rough estimate, but generally 70 to 75% of the U.S. hop supply, and our hops are sent... 70 to 75 percent. Yeah. That's a lot of hops. Yeah. So, and pretty much beyond that, um, Oregon and Idaho. So, the Northwest grows, I would say, pretty much like 90 percent, like between the three states of mm-hmm. U.S. hops. And, yep, they're sent all around the country and all around the world. So, um, right now, there's a lot of like breweries in Yakima right now. I actually, uh, w- my husband and I, our anniversary was on Monday. And Happy anniversary. Yes, yes. Great. So, yeah, so uh, we, we we made plans on other things, but we didn't make dinner reservations. And so we're like, oh, it's a Monday. It'll be fine because mm-hmm. the restaurants will be dead. And then we went to one of the restaurants, and so literally, like, all these beer people, it's like the restaurant's, like, booked, and the, the lady's like, yeah, we're not going to be able to see you till like, 9.30. It's like, well, <laughs> I, guess wow. I guess that's not happening. So, yeah, I mean. It's the beer people. Yeah, it's a big, um, so I think for those who aren't familiar, so unlike other products, hops are actually, breweries actually contract hops like years in advance. So they'll go to the Yakima Valley, they'll go to a hop field, and then they'll look and say, hey, I want this many hops for like these next few years. And so they lock them down. I mean, you can still get hops on the spot market, but it's more ideal to get it in advance. So you literally could short hops. Oh, gosh. 
Had oh, to be man. said. Had oh, to be man. said. Sorry, sorry. Maybe, maybe so, it had to be said. Yeah. What uh, <laughs> I have, I, you all maybe have questions too. I wondered what about like the, you were telling us the cherry crop got nailed by the weather. How come? The, but the hop, the, the hop crop is good. We have yeah. good hop crop. Yeah, actually, um, we're looking at. I think they were saying potentially um, the second highest hop crop ever. So, um, so the key difference is the timing of the weather. So cherries, basically every worst like nightmare of weather happened with cherries. So in the spring, we had snow and cold during pollination. And pollination is very important for cherry growth. And then during the start of the harvest, we had lots of rain in the valley, which is kind of unusual, but we had it. And so when cherries are developed to a certain point, if you have too much rain, that damages the cherries. So you can't sell them. Mm. But with hops, I mean, hops was somewhat impacted with the cold weather in the spring. I mean, that's when they kind of string... So for those who don't know much about, um, yeah, you string these hops on, you know, you install these strings and then the hops kind of spiral up, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, and so uh, that's called a hop vine. So hop, not hop vine as with, like the yeah. Seattle bar. No, hop vine with a B. Bine. Bine, yes. Okay. And so, uh, so basically by the time the hops were starting to grow, the weather was pretty good. It, it was fairly warm, not too hot like last year. Right. But pretty, but warm enough for it to develop. So that's the difference. And, cool. And I, I'm a huge fresh hop guy. I wasn't at that place on Monday in Yakima, <laughs> but I definitely was at one in Seattle. And when the fresh hops come out, it is a celebration just as good as Christmas. It's yeah. really good stuff when the breweries start making yeah, the good so stuff with the fresh hops. Yeah. It tastes great. So yeah, yeah there's it's a like key, the first you Beaujolais. The yeah, difference. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So for it. those that aren't familiar, with, like fresh hops, so it's fresh hop or wet hop. So usually, with beers are made from hops that are dried. Mm-hmm. And fresh hop, it's literally it's harvested, and then and then it's and it's called and sometimes it's called wet hops because there, there's a lot of moisture in those hops, and then they're and and then obviously during drying, it a lot of that moisture goes away. So yeah, so instead of drying them, you just make them. You make beer with the with the fresh hops. So hence, awesome. You can you can taste it. You can smell it on the beer a lot uh-huh. more. I just think, uh, yeah. Great, great time of year for a good brew, and, and thankfully we have an embarrassment of awesome breweries around Seattle. So yeah. I, I'm in. I'm in for the win. Yeah, love then, it. Yeah, and then you should consider coming to Yakima. For, um, I think next week is the Fresh Hop Road Trip. Ale Festival. Is, Isabel yeah. and I are sure. there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. All right, um, that's good. That's good autumn stuff. Is there anything else left to smile about? What else? We always want to end the show on a, on something that's making you happy, hopeful. I'm smiling big under this mask for the Mariners tonight. Yes. To seal the deal on going to the the playoffs for the first time in 21 years, oh. a playoff drought that is old enough to drink a fresh hot beer, <laughs> if I may segue again. But that's nice. such it's been terrifying to watch this team over the past couple weeks. Yes. But I think I think I think they might pull it out. It's been awesome to see. I don't want to jinx it. I know, I'm not right? Say right. Anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I would just say NASA smashed an asteroid. Our planet is safe now. Too late for the dinosaurs. And Canada dropped its requirement that you register an app before you show up at the border, so I won't have to hold up the line like I did in August. (laughs) And you can get there on Amtrak again, first time since the pandemic started. KUOW reporter Casey Martin spoke to a King Street Station passenger named Titi Kagume. Very, very excited. It's such a pleasure to have it running back. Kagume lives in Paul River, British Columbia, and has been taking the bus back and forth for the past few years. She says nothing compares to the train ride that hugs the coast all the way up to Canada. Being so close to the water and looking at the marine traffic, that is very exciting. Yeah, daily round trips now from Seattle to Vancouver. Awesome. 
done? Any more things? To, we got a minute, 50, 53 seconds left in the show. I'm actually happy to meet you, like in person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, can you smile too? I didn't, know, I didn't know you were smiling. Yeah, I I, no, I, I mean, I mean, it's uh, you know, I've been on the show like a couple times over the last year, but yeah. not never been in the studio, so it's exciting. Oh, don't be surprised. Bill is a great person to meet. You know, don't yeah. you think? Big smiles all around. It, it's, <laughs> great, it's great to be back in the yeah. studio. This is awesome. It's great to thank you, Maya. That's really nice of you, and it's great to be with you in person. Yeah. And you too, Isabella Breda you from too. the Seattle yeah. Times. And you too, Brian Callanan from the Seattle Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mai's here with Crosscut, and uh, we come together and make Week in Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu for social media and live streaming support. Thank you for uh, to Bernard Wallet running the board, making us sound great. And the program is produced by Kevin Kinestet. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening. I'm Bill Radke. We're out of time, so we'll see you next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.